Hello and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Mark Stoos to discuss how data science can be used to comprehend the underlying cause and effect relationships in business data. Mark is the CEO of Proof Analytics, an AI-driven marketing analytics platform. Prior to becoming an analytics software CEO, Mark had a successful career in B2B marketing and in 2014 was named Innovator of the Year at the Holmes Report into Sabre Awards for his work in tying marketing and communication investment to key business performance metrics. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you. Correlation does not equal causation, as anyone who has studied statistics or data science would know. As data scientists, we are trained to consider this when developing predictive models. But understanding cause and effect isn't just important when you're developing models. If you're working in business and want to be recognized for your work, it's essential that you will be able to demonstrate causality between what you do and the benefit flowing through to the business. And this is something that you, Mark, have managed to achieve in the context of marketing and communications through Proof Analytics. Yes. So to begin with, can you tell us a bit about what it is that Proof Analytics does and how it came to be? Sure. So about, I don't know, almost 20 years ago, I was at HP working for a guy named Mark Hurd, who was the CEO at the time. And at that moment, I was still a normal or what most people consider to be a typical marketer, right? And I was sort of, I don't know, interested in performance, how, how well marketing was performing in any given area. But it was, uh, for me, like it is for a lot of marketers, it was a defensive thing, right? I just, I was using it to deflect criticism and to defend my budget. And that wasn't really something that Mark heard would accept from anyone, not just me, and not just marketers. He was a very customer-focused, very operations-focused, extremely smart guy who really, you know, was not opposed to holding your feet to the fire. And so marketing came under a tremendous amount of critique in terms of our inability to demonstrate causality on anything that anyone cared about. And it wasn't that it wasn't effective. It was just that we had absolutely not a clue in the world how to express whether or not that was true and to what extent it was true. And certainly had no idea at all how to pivot what we were doing in the face of changing externalities. So I actually, I got, I got to a point of where I was sort of like saying to myself, look, I've either got to like do something to begin to fix this, or I just need to go do something completely different. And I'm not famously or infamously, depending on the situation, I'm not really a quitter. Right. And so I started, I kind of hauled out, well, not kind of, I did haul out my college math textbooks which when I graduated, I was absolutely thrilled to say goodbye to those, right? So there was like literally nothing in my background to this point that would have ever suggested that I would have ever gotten bitten by the math, analytics, science bug. I started formulating some ideas, you know, kind of got reintroduced to basic regression, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, and I went and talked to Herd and I, and then it all kind of started going, right? And success sort of begets success. And because I was the middleman between a group of data scientists and the board and the executive team at HP, and this continued on this way for other jobs, I had to figure out what my role was. And my role was to ask them, what do you most want to know and what do you most care about and how do you want to understand it? And what came back to me was, and I'm going to express this in analytics terms, not in 
because they didn't really know how to express it for a data scientist, which is also my role. I'm the, I'm the whisperer between the two groups, right? So he said, you know, essentially, we don't care at all about 95% confidence scores. Couldn't care less. Uh, in fact, most of the data in business is human performance, human behavior data. And so that right there just undercuts the idea of 95% totally. Like you, you kind of be lucky to get to 50 in many cases, right? What we care about is, and actually I did this at, at Honeywell, like an executive will say, I make decisions every day worth millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars that if you were to model my decision after the fact, might come in 10 to 20% confidence score. And yet it's a pretty damn good decision most of the time. So really my, what I want is I want you to get me into the thirties or the forties because, and I, and cause I, a lot of these decisions they have to make on a repeating basis. So what they're actually trying to do is they're trying to make every time they remake the decision, they want it to be marginally better than it was last time. So to kind of exaggerate for effect, let's just say that you had to make the same decision every morning for 365 days. And your whole goal was that every morning was going to be 1% or even a half a percent better than the morning before. So at a half percent per day compounded, you are now looking at close to 2,000% annualized improvement. That's what they're after. That's what they care about. And so what really inhibits that is too much latency between the recalculations. Like I, we went through this at, at Honeywell. I mean, I was spending many millions of dollars on marketing analytics at Honeywell. We had to overhire data science talent in order to be able to get the latency on the recalculations down to the point where they were essentially happening at the clock speed of the business. So you had multiple people on the same task, basically cycling through it. Correct. Because otherwise it's irrelevant. Otherwise you're always behind your weight. You know, you could be anywhere from two weeks to three months behind the actual decision. And so it's not even relevant, except if you're, keeping score about the past, but nobody really cares about that. They want to be able to know what the future might be and then to track your projection, your forecast against actuals and be able to operate causal analytics a lot like a GPS. So it's basically make a small decision, check how you've gone, correct and then keep repeating? In, in, in relationship to a forecast. Yeah. So if you, think about the, if you think about the GPS analogy, that's really what this is, right? That is, so GPS on your phone says, well, this is where you are. So you typically know that from the historical data on any problem. It will say, okay, this is where you say you want to go. So that's your, that's your business outcome in this case. It will give you three options on routes, which are forecasts, right? It's taking all the current data about traffic and weather and all kinds of stuff, right? And it's saying, hey, these are three viable ways to get to your destination. And each one's going to take you approximately this amount of time. You then pick one and you are cruising along, right? And it's tracking you and it's keeping track of all of these externalities that are either going to speed you up or slow you down, or if you are, if, if we're now kind of moving more into something like an airplane or a ship, can push you off course, right? The current push you off course. So being able to then keep track of all that and have a system that says, hey, we see a delta opening up between the original forecast and actuals. And we predict that this is going to continue to widen if you do nothing. And so now you can play with it. This is the way it works in proof. You can, you can war game responses 
to that, effectively exploring rerouting yourself with an explainable variance on time lag or, you know, whatever, and it allows you to stay reasonably optimized. And so that is an extremely practical illustration of the difference between data science in business and data science in a academic or research setting. Yeah, so in a research setting, you're just doing it once and that's it. Whereas in business, you've got to keep doing those calculations and corrections. I wouldn't necessarily say that you're just doing it once in, in, in academia, but, but the latency, the recalc of the models, not unusual for it to be six every six months, every 12 months. It can be pretty extended. And so that is, if you're trying to run a business that where decisions are happening on, let's say, a weekly cadence, that does you absolutely no good. You might as well just scrap your data science team because it's just not going to give you anything that ultimately will move the business forward. Everything will continue to be in the review mirror for the most part. A lot of our customers are actually highly uh, experienced and advanced in what's called marketing mixed modeling, which is essentially econometric analysis is what we're talking about right here on marketing. And, but they do, they've done it the old fashioned way they've done it, you know, and so these are big, big mega models that are recomputed every six to 12 months, sometimes every two years. And so what happens is, is that let's say it's every six months. The model is calculated and then it begins to age out. And then six, six months later, it's recalculated, but then it takes all the data science team doing the work anywhere from another 60 to 90 days to prepare the insights for consumption by people who have no data science background at all. And so it's now at nine months. So they get the they get the results and even the forecasts are most of the forecasts are now in the past so operationally it's just kind of a bust and so what i what i learned is is that you know life is a series of numerator denominator relationships and it's always that way and that is a scalable idea comes very philosophy at a certain point and in this situation, the business, the needs of the business are always the denominator. Business is not going to move to data science to accommodate data science. Data science is going to have to accommodate business. And it doesn't mean that mathematical principles and mathematical laws get thrown out the window. That's not what that means. But if your business team needs an analytic every hour on the hour, and you can only do it every week on the week, you got a problem. You're gonna have to meet them where they are. Another example of this is we figured out when we were developing a lot of the user screens for proof that if all we did was take the data science readouts on these models and render them in a beautiful way, they still would be largely unactionable by most teams. Most teams, it's really weird. There's a lot of research on this, right? People who aren't data math type people, they have no problems with charts, but they have a psychological block with graphs, okay? So if you, if you just give it if you give the give them what essentially you would give a data scientist, they'll throw up their hands and go, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? So, okay, so if that's the case and your whole goal is to make a difference, to make it better, help them make better decisions, then you're gonna have to do something different, right? You're gonna have to meet them where they are because you're not going to get, you're not gonna convince them all or force them all to, go through two semesters of data science classes at their local university. This is not happening. So you've just got to kind of think a little bit differently. And most data scientists 
weren't trained to think that way, right? Another great example of this. So one of the things we're seeing a lot here in the United States right now, which is sort of reminiscent of what happened to enterprise IT teams about 20 years ago after Y2K, is that data science teams are being moved under finance in a lot of companies. And the reason for that is that when everything became unspooled about a year, year and a half ago, the C-suites turned around to the data science, to their CDOs, right? And said, okay, I know you've been spending millions of dollars and lots and lots of people hours over the last five to seven years. Now it's time to earn your key. The problem was, is that almost all that time was spent on data management systems and they hadn't created the final step yet, like the analytics delivery. So actually getting something that the C-suite can take action from. Can actually use, right? And so it was sort of a, a lot of what they had done was still kind of a road to nowhere. And that really pissed off a lot of C-suites. So these data science teams are being placed under the CFO, not because finance believes that it can teach data scientists anything about data science, but to replicate what they did with IT 20 years ago very successfully, and that is change the culture, drive a far greater T-shaped kind of approach into data science where so data science right now is an I-shaped approach, right? Because it's it's function first, it's math first, it's analytics first. And so they want to create a, a situation where the CDO is a business leader who happens to have a great deal of expertise in data science, and but who sees the data science through the business lens, not the other way around. So it's a means to an end rather than an end in itself. Absolutely. And which is, I think, a very business principle, right? I mean, that's that's the way a business leader looks at almost anything. Even employee happiness is a means to an end. Yes. That's keeping staff turnover down, basically. <laughs> right, right, right. So, I mean, you know, and you can kind of, you can, you know, people, have, different people have different ideas about that. And, you know, you can get very philosophical about it. But, but from a very practical standpoint, that's a unassailable truth and it's sort of like gravity you cannot like it all you want to and it's not going to change for you while you've been talking i've been trying to figure out how all of this works technically so these models you're describing are they regression type models or are they time series type models they are multivariable linear and nonlinear regression models yeah that obviously use almost exclusively uh, time series data because that's what businesses collect. Parenthetically, this is sort of the great unanswered problem with AI is that AI in businesses anyway, AI is a big data set of solutions. If a business doesn't have a lot of big data, it's sort of hard to implement a lot of AI. Right. And so, I mean, we, there are obvious exceptions, particularly regulated industries, aerospace, automotive, pharma, healthcare, those just a few. They're going to have a lot more big data. But still, even in those situations, it's overwhelmingly technical or research oriented data. It's not big data about the business of the business. This is where actually, I think one of the most profound ironies of the of this whole thing, right, is that it's the old tried and true multivariable regression that actually still answers about 80% of the world's questions. And it, the fact that it's not sexy, right, and not cool doesn't change that fact. So you'd have all these observations of various variables at regular intervals of time. So I don't know, hourly, daily, whatever it is. And they would predict something revenue or whatever it is. And from that, you can work out if I pull this lever, then that will cause revenue to go up. And what you've got with 
proof analytics is a tool that basically is constantly refitting that uh, multiple linear regression model in order to make sure that you don't end up with model deterioration. Is that right? That is correct. It's also re-optimizing whatever it is that you're doing. A great way to think about this is that when, when a client implements proof and begins to run it in the very beginning, what they discover is the 80-20 rule is alive and well, right? So anywhere from, say, 20 to 35% of marketing investment or go-to-market investment is either suboptimal or non-performing. So it's waste. And it's not hard to stop spending money, that money. So they, they get an immediate benefit and then they can put that money, they can reinvest it in areas that where the model says that you can get more, if you spend more, you'll get more good stuff up to a point, you know, the point of diminishing returns. And so then on an ongoing basis, net of relevant externalities, it will keep your wastage in the three to 5% range. So you might discover that advertising on Facebook to one particular demographic is a waste of money, but advertising on LinkedIn to a different demographic is resulting in an increase in sales. Is that right? Yeah, that, yeah, sure. I mean, another great example would be how is all of your go-to-market investment, so let's just say that that's marketing and sales together, how is that impacting average deal velocity, meaning how quickly you close deals on average. This is really important because there's a one-to-one relationship between average deal velocity and cash flow from revenue. So if you're closing faster, that means you're invoicing faster and you're collecting faster and CFOs love that. If you've got 14 billion in revenue and you get it to where it's moving 5% faster into the company, the CFO will be your best friend forever. (laughs) That's a great example of being able to figure out what the right mix is. So marketing is a nonlinear multiplier of areas of linear business performance, one of which is sales. In this case, in plain language, it means marketing brings a level of leverage to sales performance that sales cannot self-generate. So the value of marketing is really the extent to which it is making sales more effective and more efficient. The efficiency of the effectiveness. It's not just efficiency because you can be very efficiently doing the wrong thing. Uh, So in practical terms, the way this a lot of times goes down is that marketing starts to really make sales very effective and very efficient to the point where they don't need as many sales guys as they once did because there's sort of a built-in wastage in that as well. So not only are they their total close rate improving constantly, but the speed at which they're closing is improving. So they're able to stack more deals per quarter into a given sales reps purview. So their total cost of sales goes down while at the same time driving much better outcomes. That is, that's an example of that. What sort of lag do you experience between when an executive makes a decision and when you can start to see the results of that decision in the data? Uh, see, that is a great question. So time lag is, in my view, the great enemy from the standpoint that if you don't know the time lag, you will never find the value. So this goes back to the fact that we live in a four-dimensional world, three of which are physical, one is time, right? So if you and I agree we're going to go have lunch somewhere and you say, hey, I'll meet you on the 20th floor of a building at the corner of walk and don't walk, but you never tell me a date and a time, you and I will never meet. It's sort of the same thing here, right? And so 
one of the great things about correlation as an exploratory piece of work is that it generates a time lag relationship, right? That allows you to see on a one-to-one basis what that, what the strength and speed of that relationship might be, kind of looks like, as a way of vetting what relationships might be valuable in a regression model. And so in our particular case, both historically and on a forward-looking forecasting basis, it's going to give you a stack rank that's perpetually updated at whatever the, the cadence is that you need it to happen at. It says, out of all these things, these this is the most effective to the least effective, and this is the fastest to the slowest. So it allows you to begin to really understand, again, on a multivariable basis, because there's not one all up time lag, going to show you how things are kind of, I mean, it allows you to really think about marketing and sales as a investment portfolio that you're managing. So the, the specific answer to your question is it really depends. It depends on the business. It depends on the headwinds and tailwinds that are happening. There are some things in marketing, for example, like brand investment, where the time lags are consistently pretty long, but the half-life is also pretty long. So they, they take a while to build and then they hang around for a pretty good length of time, right? There's a lot of residual value there. Whereas in what's called demand, so demand marketing is like, I'm sure like you, like everybody else, gets a ton of email that you did not necessarily ask for that's trying to get your business, right? I mean, that's one example of demand. The, the average lag on demand, high quality demand programs is gonna be a lot shorter than it is on brand. It's going to be stuff in the middle. So you've got to kind of be able to really understand and manage what you're doing across a series of renewal cycles would be one way to kind of simplistically think about this. At what cadence do I always need to renew the pressure in the system? Because if I don't renew the pressure in the system, all of a sudden, on a time-lagged basis, that means that all of a sudden something is going to peter out down here and it'll take a while to get it restarted. Now, I don't want to have to restart the engine. I just want to, but I also don't want to overstimulate the engine either. I don't want to spend more than I need to spend in order to get the result that I'm after. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. So with regard to the lags, you could have in your model, you could have a variable that's some factor one week ago and what will that have on revenue, but in some other, in a different model, it might be one month ago or one year ago. Yeah, it's it's, it's highly related. Again, there's this is a mathematical principle almost, so not no great surprise here. 60 to 65, maybe even 70%. I think if you talk to most data scientists, it would be sort of in that range, Right of any given model situation is going to be externalities. So this is highly related to what those externalities are and how strong they are. Either way, headwind or tailwind or crosswind. It works that way too. So a while back you were talking about the challenges of communicating the outcomes of this analysis to C-suite executives. And you're saying how you couldn't just provide them with your standard Python output from fitting these models. So I take it we're talking about the fitted coefficients of the regression T yeah. values, all those you kind of any, things. You use any of those words, okay? It's over. It's over. If all those things are out of bounds, how do you communicate it to the C-suite? You talk about the same principles using business terms. So you talk, you know, like, if you use time, I mean, I do occasionally use the word time lag or the phrase time lag because most people can grasp that. Okay. But I will say how many people are at like particularly like early conversations, first conversations, right? I'll say how many of you agree that great marketing takes time 
to be successful. I have yet to find anyone, even the most hard-bitten CFO, who won't agree with that statement. However, that's not really the issue. The issue is how much time? Because if I have to, in in the mind of a business leader, if I have to wait a really long time to see the payback, then on a time-adjusted basis, the, the payback isn't as good. And it's also exposed to a lot more risk, mainly from externalities. So they look at longer-term risk with a much more jaundiced eye than stuff that where the, the feedback loop is really fast. And yet they also know that if, I mean, I'll I'll use this analogy because everybody gets it, right? If you're running a paper company and you don't replant the forest, you're going to not be a paper company very long. There is a long lag component to every business. You have to recharge the system. So you've got to be able to figure that out. It's one of the reasons why a lot of distilleries they may be, you know, their pride and joy product might be fine aged bourbon whiskey, but the time lag on that is seven to 10 years minimum. They don't have a cash crop like vodka or gin. They won't have the cash flow to stay open long enough to reap the benefits of the 10, 12 year old whiskey. So it's about balancing this whole thing. And so that's what they're after. That's what they want to understand. They honestly, in my experience, and I think the experience of a lot of other people, they don't care about understanding the math. Like, honestly, most of them are mathematical Philistines. They not only don't understand it, they don't want to understand. They just want to understand that you know it and that you are standing behind it and that it's going to be good. It's going to be dependable. That's really what it is. One of the things like the, that we do at Proof is we're always, every time we do a product update, we retest the entire system using usually large amounts of healthcare data with a known outcome because we want to make sure that everything stays aligned. And so the goal is Proof had better replicate the known outcome pretty much perfectly out to I think our standard is five decimal places because I mean, it's the same math. The math is the math. There's no proprietary math on this. Right. So, so you're kind of, you should, you should have exactly the same outcome as somebody who did it on Stata. That is not the magic of proof. The magic of proof is being able to do it a lot faster, a lot less expensively, a lot more scalably, like a lot of the, a lot of times these companies are paying several million dollars a year for two models and like they're doing business in like 50 countries and yet they can't afford to support 50 markets with the same analytic. Well, that's crazy. So with proof, they can totally do that. It's a it's radically affordable. So going back to what you're saying a few minutes ago with communicating to these executives, what I'm hearing from that is that rather than talking about technical stuff like coefficients and T-values, you might express the way you're communicating in terms of if you do this, it will have a X dollar impact on revenue and the payback period of that would be Y years or whatever. Right. And you're it's reducing your risk substantially because you're recalculating the model so frequently that if things start to change, either in the quality of your execution or more likely externalities, you pick up that change very quickly and be able to respond as opposed to six months later, discovering that you are way off course and having to change. Actually, I grew up in a sailing family. We did a lot of long distance racing. And I, from a young age, was taught to be the navigator. I just happened to be old enough where when I was doing all that, the my role was going through a whole bunch of technological upgrade. So first, you know, because I learned with a sextant and a chronometer and 
all that kind of stuff, right? And, and then you kind of get sat-nav. So it used to be when I first started out that you would, you would run a plumb line on the chart, which was your perfect hyper-efficient course. And then every time you would reestablish your location, you were basically zigzagging back and forth very eccentrically across this plumb line. One way to kind of think about that is the interior area of each one of those triangles that make up the zigzag is waste. It's wasted time, wasted resources, bears against your ability to win the race, all that kind of stuff. Then all of a sudden with SatNav, right, we had a perpetual feed on location. And then the magic happened because uh, it integrated with autopilot. And so the autopilot was taking the location information and constantly tweaking the position of the rudder relative to everything else. And so instead of these giant zigzags back and forth across the plumb line, we called it the snake. All of a sudden, it was these really shallow, little, very, very mildly eccentric back and forth curves across the plumb line. Lot less waste. We were one of the first boats to actually implement this. And so for one whole season, we just kicked butt. And then everybody else got the same technology and it was sort of mutually leveling. Like the average time that it took to complete one of these races dropped by about 15 to 20%. Oh, wow. Right. And so for like everybody, net of all other variables, everyone experienced that kind of efficiency gain. So it, it meant that you could do more races if you chose to. It meant that you didn't have to have as much food. Food is actually really heavy. So it slows a bit down. You, there were a lot of ways that people started playing around with the variables that were essentially improved by what I just described, right? 15 to 20%. So how are we going to use that 15 to 20% to actually get more out of it, right? Because if, if we get like another five points faster, man, that's going to be awesome. We're probably going to win more, at least for a time. It's that constant optimization. And it's not just about S-curves, it's, it's actually very, very practical when you think of it through a GPS lens as you're seeing the relationships right there, like more or less in real time, depending on how you define real time and certainly real time in the context of a business. And so you're able to adjust and constantly drive out the inefficiencies. In this case, a lot of the inefficiencies are you're eliminating those eccentric zigzags. A few minutes ago, you mentioned that when you do the updates of this, you test it on health data. And a lot of what we talked about is about marketing data. What other contexts could you apply a tool such as this? Actually, I mean, so we have to, you know, a cardinal rule of a startup or a scale-up business is that you got to focus. So we focus on go to market because it is so, it's such a huge issue. There's a lot of money to be made there. But the reality of it is, is that proof is agnostic on use case. So we do have customers that use it for other things. And if you stop and think about it, mathematically, it has to be agnostic because you're bringing all of this dissimilar, theoretically unrelated data Together, consumer confidence data is comes from a completely different mindset, a completely different source than marketing data. The fact that one impacts the other is, is an analytical equation reality, but otherwise these are very disparate. And so to accommodate that proof, just like the underlying regression, has to be extremely flexible. I mean... Climate change is a great example of this. I mean, there are so many different variables to consider that you, and, and most of them you just, you'd be outside of a, an analytical construct, a model, you'd be hard pressed to say that one has in any way related. 
the other thing that's really, I think, a great example that climate change shows you is that the importance of time lag. Yeah, and you did that fantastic video that illustrates that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a. I think that one of the reasons, one of the reasons, why so many people have resisted the science around climate change is that they walk outside until just recently, last several years, it, it got a little, it's gotten a little hairy, right? But for years and decades, they would walk outside and they'd say, I don't see any change. And what those scientists got to be out of their mind, right? I'm not seeing, it's not getting hotter here. It's not getting a lot colder here, right? I mean, maybe we'll have a cold, cold winter, but we always have had cold winters or we've always had hot summers that kind of stuck out. And then all of a sudden, because and again, this is the non-linearity at play, all of a sudden it's incremental, it's incremental, it's incremental, and then boom, it hockey sticks. And that's what you're seeing now. And that is also something that you see in go-to-market, you see in business, right, is it will feel, while everything is in flight, that's the time-lagged bit, feel like nothing is happening. And business leaders will get very freaked out by that because their mindset is we launched this marketing campaign in Q1 and I should be able to see an effect of that in Q1 or early Q2. And in some businesses, that's true. And in other businesses, it's not even close to true. I always see it as being like the activation energy in chemistry, you know, how you'd have the reaction and it'd have yeah. to get to some sort of chemical point before, yeah, it'd suddenly do some cool thing. Yeah, no, I think that's a great example as well. I think that human beings are fundamentally uncomfortable with the extreme multivariability and nonlinearity of life. So we try to create constructs that simplify that. In some cases, it appears, and unfortunately, for longer, for long enough period of time where it seems to give it credibility, it appears that it's right. And then all of a sudden it's not right, it's way out. An exponential relationship looks like a linear relationship initially. It's only yes, once it right. has that inflection point. That's exactly it, right? So, I mean, it's just a, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's a, I think that that one of the ways that analytics can make you a better person is that it shows you the truth. Small, I'll even go with small t truth. It will show you the facts about what is actually happening in a given situation. And there are some takeaways that are inescapable. For example how little we actually control. It's actually kind of mind boggling. And yet it's still, we are still really, 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 really important. Great example would be you're surfing a wave. Absolutely, you know, the wave is easily 70 to 80% of that equation. And you're not ever gonna have any control over it, no matter what you do. In fact, only the most nutty narcissist in the world would ever dream they could control the wave. But What's also important is the quality of your feedback loops that you build with between yourself and waves, plural, and your ability to actually surf, to shift, know how to shift your weight on the board, know how to maneuver the board in relationship to the wave. Again, numerator, denominator, you're not the denominator, but that makes all the difference between finishing with a flourish on the beach and wiping out. So it's impossible to say, the analytics would never say that you are absolutely immaterial and totally a victim, nor would the analytics ever say that you are a master of the universe. Both are actually totally narcissistic views. That's something actually that I was taught when I was in kindergarten, but I'm ashamed to say it took analytics to kind of sink the hook of that idea. I, sh I, sh I shouldn't have been such a tough nut, but I was. You see it from time to time in the world when someone who should be insignificant makes a massive change. You know, the 
mother of a child who died in a horrific accident who takes action and draws awareness to some problem in the world. You know, things like that. These are people who, in the grand scheme of things, shouldn't matter, and yet they can manage to implement massive changes in people's behaviour and all sorts of things like that. Absolutely. And and also, you know, the other thing to always remember is that it is a ripple effect. So what that mother does is magnified by other people and other situations that she does not control, but who who come alongside her, so to speak, either with intent or just situationally, and take her efforts and catapult them forward and upward. That is also a statistical reality. It's an analytical reality. Yeah, that's what my mum always said, which was whatever you're thinking, odds are there are tons of other people who are thinking exactly the same thing and just no one's willing to say it. That's right. I think the other thing too is that I don't want to lose this because I think it's really important. Data scientists are human just like everybody else and in their own lives, they like instant gratification. It's one of the reasons why they they all hate data prep because there is no instant gratification in data prep. And yet they don't act many times as though they understand that business leaders want instant gratification too. And so this whole idea that they can walk in to a boardroom three months after a decision was made and say, we have all these fantastic insights that we have plucked about that decision and have everybody care is just wrong. The world actually, in so many ways, is driven by your ability to satisfy the desire for instant gratification. It's a, it's not just an economic, in the case proof, right? Not just an economic set of considerations or even a speed to market sort of construct. It's the ability to know when I want to know what's going on. And that is very human extremely human and flawed. And yet you're not going to ever successfully win that contest. Is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? Sure. I think that if we don't do it exactly the right way, we're going to, we will have a generation of people who become so reliant on it that they, they lose the ability to think critically. I think also in many use cases, it's going to involve a level, uh, it's going to involve us giving up a level of privacy that all of us are going to have real concerns about. So one of the things that I have a personal interest in, and I, when I'm not doing what I'm, what I'm doing right now, I, I read a lot and do a lot of primary research in the area of the history of innovation in the period of time leading up to the Renaissance, comparing and contrasting Northern Italy and Southern Germany, both hotbeds during that period of time of innovation, but who approached it very differently. And it is, it's one of those things where if you ask chat GPT to write a research paper, fully footnoted academic style research paper, on some aspect of that subject matter, which I'm probably really well-versed in, where there's a lot of content on the web and yet it's still fairly arcane, in about four minutes, it will spit out this absolutely incredible looking paper. And if you knew very little about the subject, you would say, you read it and you go, wow, this sounds great to me. If you have a fair amount of knowledge of the subject, what you're going to find today is that it is riddled with inaccuracies and inconsistencies and total fabrications. So I actually did this, exact what I'm describing, I did it. And much to my amazement, so I saw some footnotes that I was completely unfamiliar with. And I'm like, wow, how exciting. I'm going to actually go find these and read them, right? They, they weren't real. They didn't exist. Yeah. Right. 
And then the problem is with a lot of this content that's produced by Gen AI is sooner or later, it's going to be re-crunching, if you will, data that was generated by AI to begin with. And so the problem gets compounded. And if we don't really take, so it sounds like that I'm really anti-AI, I'm not, but I am aware that this is never, technology is never a binary topic. It's amoral, what you do with it and how well you bear against the risks versus the rewards of that technology is everything. Nuclear is a great example. Can it cost effectively heat and cool tens of millions of homes around the world if we chose to? Sure. Can it also you know, extinguish life on this planet? Yes, it, it can. I think that, have you seen the movie Oppenheimer? No, I haven't. It's a it's it's a it's a phenomenal film as history. It's it's probably one of the best historical films I've ever watched. I thought one of the things that really captured was all the these scientists at Los Alamos knew that there were great risks associated with this. They didn't exactly know what those risks might really be, but they knew that there were real risks, but they had nothing to compare it to. And so when they did the first detonation, their first reaction was, I wish that we could go back in time and uninvent this. Now, that's a hell of a statement. Famously, you know, in his diary, a couple of days later, Oppenheimer wrote that, you know, he quoted that famous Hindu text about, I've become death, the destroyer of worlds, right? Right about that time that 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 was coming out in the movie and all this kind of stuff you also had the foremost father of ai the guy at google suddenly resign from google and go whoa 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 oh, this is jeffrey hinton right so you're so you're kind of like going hey you know that's probably somebody we should listen to this is not necessarily, a, again, it's not a binary thing. It doesn't mean that we just junk AI and somehow say, well, we're, we didn't really do that and we're just going to act like we're going to wall it off over here because that's not real. But now that we have done what we've done, we need to have some really, really, really good rules around how it's going to operate, just like we have with nuclear. What final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? You may not think of yourself in this way, okay, but you were taught to be a member of a cult of precision. That is fundamentally incompatible with most businesses. It does not answer the questions that they care about at the speed or latency that they need it. And when you walk in with results that are so heavily caveated, because that's what you would do with fellow data scientists. Business leaders look at you and go, well, if you're that unsure, then why are we even talking? So if I had to give any data scientist a two-word piece of advice, I would say be relevant before every, anything else. It's not, not telling you that you need to absolve yourself of mathematical principles or anything like that. That's not it. But you're not being asked to tack it down to 95% or better. That's not the goal here. If you think it's the goal, you will never, and I underscore never, be successful in business analytics. You might be successful in a research portion of that business, but in terms of analyzing the business of the business, you will be a bust. If you can't do it fast, you won't be successful. If you can't be understood by people not like you, you won't be successful. I, I find myself in this very, very interesting place. So I sit in three circles professionally. I sit in the kind of a CEO, CFO circle. I sit in a marketer circle and I sit in a CDA, CDO circle. And I can hang out and hold my own with all three groups but I play the alter ego to each one. Like with CDOs, I mean, I love them. And I, and data scientists in general, I mean, 
the whole tendency to debate how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I totally love that kind of conversation. So I can sit with them. And that's since I'm not a normal marketer, not a normal business leader, right? I, I can geek out with all of them. And yes, I have learned a lot about what they do, but I am not a data scientist myself. But I think that I can probably represent what they do to other audiences better than they can themselves most of the time. I will then move over to the business leaders and the marketers, and I will represent the point of view of data scientists to them, to challenge them, to say, hey, you know what? Neither one of you guys know any math other than how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. So you have, when you ask for certain things, you have no idea what you're asking for. So you, you know, so it's part of it is I don't really deal with the technicalities of data scientists with their, with these other audiences and I, I or vice versa. I am taught, I'm managing people's expectations. I am helping them all understand each other better. And then we have a software platform that, kind of instantiates that those principles, right? To the extent that I do conversations like the one that you and I are having, or I stand on a stage or whatever, it's because of that perspective. I, it's not because I'm a, you know, a whiz bang mathematician. I mean, I, I do love it, but I'm not, that's not my, that's not my thing. It's not what I'm best at. And as I said to you before the interview, the thing that made me most want to have you on this program was that video you did in the middle of Sweden where you're drawing the analogy between climate change and what proof analytics does because I thought that was the best way I'd ever seen someone explain an analytical tool. Well, thank you. I mean, I I will say this. I think that the best, I mean, almost every analogy will break. The only ones that won't break are the ones that feel like analogies, but actually aren't. They are representations of the same thing. And so I think that that's where climate change, things like that are as analogies that people can relate to, totally do not break because it's undergirded by the same principles. The GPS as an analogy does not break because regression actually is part of the way GPS actually works. One of the things that I used to do a long time ago was I didn't care about whether the analogies broke at some point. I was just trying to connect with the audience and get them to see a particular perspective. As soon as I got into data science, and particularly as CEO of Proof, I only work, I only use analogies that are not really analogies. They just look like So for listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? So I think, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very active, maybe even hyperactive on LinkedIn. That is a super easy way to reach me. My presence on LinkedIn is a non-sales function. I am here to talk to people, to help people. I don't track them down. I don't chase them down. I don't bug them until they buy you know, license to proof. I don't do any of that stuff. If you want to have that kind of conversation, I can totally make that happen for you. But that's not the conversation you'll have with me. So you, the only reason why I say that is you don't need to worry that if I if you reach out to me that I'm that you're going to wish that you'd never done. Uh, so that I would say LinkedIn, either a DM in LinkedIn or or just comment under one of my comments and just say, hey, can we connect? You know. I would say that certainly email, although it's getting less and less, but uh, my email is mark, M-A-R-K dot Stuse, S as in Sam, T as in Tom, O-U-S-E at proof analytics, just like it sounds, dot A-I. And then, you know, our, our website is proofanalytics.ai. So those are three really super excellent ways. And I'll put the links in the show notes. Awesome. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Mark. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I mean, it's, um, it's, 
I think the most exciting things, by the way, as a historian, I would say this is also a historical truth. The the most exciting things are in in the way that other things converge together, right? To create something different. That is, that's where throughout history, you see the biggest for good and not so good. I, I love the, the, the fact that I sit right now at this intersection is a joy to me, right? And I, I hope that that has come through in this conversation. I, I just thoroughly enjoy the living heck out of this. Oh, I totally enjoyed this conversation. So I'm really grateful that you made the time to be here. Thank you so much. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.